0: WMQA! Hello and welcome to wmq and the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're chatting with Dylan McConus and Ben Coleman, the writers of Oni Press's The Long Con, one of my favorite series of the past year. Uh, the basic premise is, what if you were trapped inside a pop culture convention and could not leave, uh, partly because the apocalypse had happened outside. Uh, it's a super fun book with some amazing homage covers by uh, Emily Denish and Fred uh, Streesing, and I was really glad we got to talk to some of the creators. Uh, Issue number nine of 10 comes out this Wednesday, May 8th, and uh, you can buy the first half of the series in trade, so please check that out. In the meantime, we've got some news. First off, we are once again restructuring our Patreon tiers. Going forward, we're gonna have one tier, to rule them all, a $1 tier, which if you choose to back, You not only get early access to episodes of W and Q and A, uh, and you earn a spot on the Wall of Heroes which lets you promote your work on our site, but you also get your own custom-made bonus reading column from Matt Lazowitz, a deep dive into comics history built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Uh, In the past, he's examined weird Thanos stories, the best image comics to read during the saga hiatus, uh, notable all-ages LGBTQ comics, and more. Uh, This week, in honor of Mother's Day, he's looking at bad moms, uh, supervillains like Granny Goodness, Mother Night, and more. Uh, So if you want all those goodies, and you think our site is worth the low, low cost of a dollar a month, uh, please head on over to patreon.com slash wmqcomics and back. But that's not all. Uh, We've got stuff to give away. Uh, We've got two passes to Garden State Comic Fest, June 29th and 30th at the Menin Arena in Morristown, New Jersey. All you have to do is be our 600th follower on Twitter, at WMQ Comics, and uh, we will send you the passes. Guests include Roy Thomas, Greg Hildebrandt, Jan Dursima, Tom Mandrake, Tom Rainey, Billy Tucci, Riley Brown, Howard Mackey, Erica Schultz, Fernando Ruiz, and more. Finally, starting this episode, uh, we're going to be supersizing things a little bit, uh, including some of the mini-interviews we recorded the past couple of weeks at Camden Comic Con and Free Comic Book Day. And uh, we're starting with Joe Corallo, one of the editors on Dead Beats, a music-themed horror anthology, wrapping up its Kickstarter this week, $5,000 over goal, uh, lest I looked. Uh, Joe's also got a new series coming out from Vault later this month called She Said Destroy, which we will discuss more in a future episode. Uh, so without further jibba-jabba, here are me and Matt and Joe, followed by me and Matt and Dylan and Ben. <laughs> All right, we're here now with uh, Joe Corello, and uh, you just got a little bit of good news on Easter Sunday, your uh, horror music anthology, Deadbeats, for Rape the World, uh, fully backed on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, and you still got like, like a week and a half to go in the campaign?
1: Yeah, the last day is May 9th, so we still have about 11 days to go.
0: That's awesome. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Deadbeats?
1: Sure, it's a music-themed horror anthology, uh, with about a uh, little over 20 stories, are, are going to be included. It's uh, 160 pages, full color, uh, about this music shop called Deadbeats, run by the shopkeeper. And uh, in that, there's all these sort of haunted uh, musical items and. You know, posters, t-shirts, records, stuff like that. And the stories all sort of tie together to items that have come or have been in the store at some point. And um, one of the highlights of the book uh, is that we're actually reuniting Rachel Pollack, Richard Case, and John Workman, who all worked on Doom Patrol at the same time. Uh, and uh, they haven't worked together in over 25 years. So. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. We're actually doing a series, I think, this summer on Pollock and Phase um, 1 on Doom Patrol. So yeah. Kind of That's yeah, great. Uh,
1: now you guys have some uh, stretch goals now that we have made, it, right? Yeah. Uh, we're, um, we're closing in. We're less than uh, $1,500 from our first stretch goal, which is to do a spot gloss cover, uh, really make like the logo pop on it, and, and just do a better cover stock in general. But... Um, once we get to 35k everyone who backed the physical book or higher is gonna get two mini prints for no additional cost so we're, we're really you know really looking forward to that and then beyond that uh, we're looking to do a Kickstarter uh, exclusive uh, cover for backers so that'll be at the 14k mark and if if we keep going beyond that we'll come up with some more stretch goals we have some stuff in mind but you know I think you know, I think we should come close to that.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh Wave the World, is like their sixth anthology. They're kind of, you know, old hands at this by now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in kind of setting up the goals, you know, what, what are some of the things you kind of have to keep in mind in terms of, like, you know, donation points and stuff like that?
1: Well, one of the things when it comes to, to keeping all that in mind, especially when coming up with stretch goals, if you're adding stuff at, at no additional cost to, to the backers, you have to keep shipping in mind. Oh yeah. So, you know, there's some stuff right off the bat we, we had to, like, axe. like, we couldn't do, like, a full-size poster that would require a tube, because the shipping, just all that additional shipping uh, would kill the Kickstarter. Yeah. So, keeping that weight in mind and things like that. One of the things that happens uh, a a lot with like an anthology, people often do things like a stretch goal of like adding more, like increasing the size of the book. One of the reasons we're, we're trying to avoid that is you're increasing the weight of the book and shipping from the printer. If we're getting one less book in each box, that adds up really fast. And then once we ship it, that additional weight can really start adding up too. So trying to keep the book the same weight and not using additional packaging uh, for shipping has has really been sort of the focus to make sure that uh, the, the funding still runs smoothly and that we're able to get quality stuff to people without it, you know, make it impossible to print get the book out there. Absolutely.
0: Uh, so, when uh, I guess when you when you start that laborious process of, of you know shipping and order fulfillment and getting the book in people's hands. Yeah.
1: Um, the the goal is to get the book out for Halloween. The perfect
2: timing. Yeah. So.
1: So for something like that, the majority of the shipping is going to have to be done by early October, mid-October at the latest. Okay. So, you know, we have to look at our options because of the, the volume of books we're getting. Um, I don't know at what point we might have to look into a fulfillment center or something like that. I think right now we're, we're good, but you know, once you start crossing to a certain point that might become beneficial, so that's something we're going to have to look into, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, um, you know, it's going to be weeks, probably, yeah. shipping, especially without, you know, additional help, so.
0: Um, and again, for people, who, you know, who don't know, let's let's talk about some of the creators involved, because you've got some mm-hmm. amazing people in this. Uh, you've already mentioned, obviously,
1: uh, Doom Patrol, too. Right? Yeah, some uh, right? yeah, for sure. Uh, we've got a... Uh, Steens and uh, Ivy Noel, Um,
3: recent guests on our show. Oh, that's great! (laughs) Yes, yeah,
1: and they did. uh, You know, you probably already covered this, but they won the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Archive Equality. So yeah, we were really excited to have them working together again. Uh, Another big highlight for us is uh, Daniel Kibblesmith and Rafer Roberts. Uh,
3: Both been on the show. Rafer has. Right. Okay, I I couldn't remember. You would know. (laughs) <laughs> is, it might have been those couple months before I came off. <laughs> the dark period. <laughs> yes, but, but, yeah.
1: But, um, but, yeah, Daniel, um, they just announced his uh, Loki book that's yep. coming out this summer. And, obviously, you know, he does stuff at um, the Late Show with Colbert. He's done other comics. Um, his uh, book, um, was it, Santa's Husband, like, all that sort of stuff. And Rafer has a book, Grumble, at uh, Image right now with uh, Mike Norton, and and he's been on the scene for a while, and that's an instance where we got uh, Daniel on board, and I I had thought Rafer would be a good choice to pair with him, because of sort of the the story that Daniel was going for. Uh, The the story's a bit of a, a a riff on, creepy nerd dudes that go to like concerts and like uh, think that just because a girl's there, she's interested they have to be interested in me because we're clearly interested in the same band and oh how and how that doesn't go well for him yeah. so so yeah, so Rafer was the first person I had in mind to get that kind of kind of feel going and Rafer uh, immediately said yes and, and we were really Excited to get them on board together. Um, another really exciting pairing is... Uh, was it Danny Lore and Marie Anger? Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny's book with uh, Vault... Uh, Queen, Queen of Bad Queen, Dreams? Yeah, Queen of Bad Dreams yeah. just came out. I got to read it before... Beforehand and... It's really excellent. It's got that nice... Play- it's a little bit of like... Blade Runner meets... Neil Gaiman Sandman kind of stuff going on which I, I really liked and, um, and you know they're writing the this story and then Marie uh, just had a Kickstarter um, but uh, she's she's really great she's a fantastic artist please look up Marie Anger um, I think she's so energy on on Twitter but she has a very stylized style but uh, <laughs> her art's very stylized. But um, but no, she's absolutely fantastic. I'm really excited I got a chance to work with her on this as well.
0: That's awesome. Uh, from how far away have you come to be here at
1: Not that far. I, I'm based on Long Island, so I mean, it's you will, a, couple of hours, a little over a couple of hours, but like, you know, it's not too bad. Um, you know, I don't think I've been to Camden before in in general, and this is my first time at this show. But um, but yeah, it's it's actually it's it's nice. Uh, I'm surprised by the uh, quality of guests. You yeah, know. Oh
3: well, yeah, it's it, it's great. I mean, it, it, this is my hometown show. I live ten minutes from here. Oh great, great. Yeah. And so I watch. I've been. I didn't do the first one, but I've done the past five. Not, never before as a guest, just as a someone wandering around the floor and it's amazing to watch this show grow from this little indie thing to something that is so cool and the only free show you'll run in you'll find with guests of this caliber
1: oh yeah like uh, because I'm sitting uh, what was it Uh, the Simonsons are behind uh, the table I'm at with Comic Mix and then you know Jerry Conway and Bob Greenberger and Stuart Moore like Larry Hama like all those guys it's and not to mention all of the other people, uh, Kristen Gutsnick, who who's absolutely fantastic. I remember I I remember going to uh, Carmine Street Comics in Manhattan years ago when she was uh, self-publishing um, uh, Hench Girl. Mm-hmm. And, and just seeing how far she's come along has, has really been great. what
3: book she did with Rafer last year. Yeah! Uh, Modern Fantasy was one of my favorite books of last year and talking yeah. to her in a little bit about that and other things. No, yeah, that's
1: great. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm thrilled that she's been uh, thriving in the industry. No, uh, what, do you, what
0: are you reading right
1: now, personally? Well, some of the stuff I've, I've really been enjoying is uh, Wonder Twins at uh, DC. Uh, Mark Russell is absolutely crushing it. I, I love it so much. Um, the new books from Ahoy, um, I really liked the... Um, uh, Bronze Age Boogie and uh, Planet of the Nerds um, th- those have been excellent uh, stuff from uh, Vault I've been trying to keep up with I finally read Submerged uh, now that the trade's been out you know that that was really that was a good read
0: uh, yeah
1: Lisa's absolutely fantastic I'm so glad we're we got her when, uh, when we did And um, since the Kickstarter launched, she got to announce the one-shot issue of Glow she's doing with Devin Grayson, which is phenomenal. I I mean, you know, um, I I also read Lisa's book prior to this, um, Long Lost, with uh, her husband Matthew Ehrman at Scout Comics, and and that's been, uh, that was great. I think it just wrapped... Uh, maybe a couple months ago or so, and either the second trade is out or it's about to be out. But it was uh, 12 issues, and, and that was great. Um, what else? Um, SBI Press has okay. been putting out some stuff. They did uh, Starburns Industries? Uh, Yeah, Starburn. <laughs> I read uh, Griffin. Okay. And uh, that, I think, is going to be part of their... Uh, uh, what was it, the free comic book day? I think they have a preview of that, but I, I had a chance to read the first issue, and, awesome. and that's really good. Um, it has a lot of the same vibes as stuff like uh, Kim and Kim, which I edit over at Black Mask. So, you know, it's nice seeing that kind of stuff out there.
0: Yeah. Um, this is sort of our weird, like, table
1: icebreaker. Would you like a safe by the the College or the <laughs> trading <card>? <laughs> <laughs> Uh Maybe. I, I, my choice. I get to pick one of these. Yes, absolutely. Yes it is. All right. Jeez, these are <laughs> these are really unnerving. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Indeed, they are.
1: <laughs> now, all of these are gems. <laughs> true,
0: true. But there's
1: one with Screech and a monkey. <laughs> that. And I, I have to pick Screech with a monkey. Screech with the monkey. Wisely. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Thank you. We enjoy that. And uh, we are actually going to talk about this on another episode of the show, but I just want to make sure that I bring it up. We've got Bolt uh, series coming out at the end of May. She said destroy. Right? Yes. Uh, I've seen a preview of it. It looks gorgeous.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, how, how long in the making uh, is this book for you guys?
1: You know, uh, a lot of people... Have these really grand stories of like I've been working on this book for years and everyone turned it down and then something happened, you know and and this is not normally the case for things I, I've created a bunch of stuff in the past that either never got picked up or it took forever to move along I came up with the idea early 2018 Liana was the first pub, the first uh, artist I talked to about it, and she said yes. Vault was the first publisher I approached with it, and they greenlit it, and they slotted it about. You know, it was only maybe nine months or so after we were like, okay, we're going to do this. So like, so it really moved very quickly in, in a way that I know is not the norm for a lot of people so
3: that's a great story in itself yeah
1: i I mean yeah you know and i i've pitched all sorts of ideas to all sorts of publishers and it's never gone this smoothly before (laughs) i don't know if it'll ever go this smoothly again so i'm enjoying the ride that's awesome (laughs)
0: excellent all right joe thanks for stopping by the table
1: Have you ever
4: been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Arkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
0: All right, so uh, Dylan and Ben, uh, our typical icebreaker question, what do, what comics do you guys remember reading when you first got into the medium?
2: Ben,
4: you start. Uh, yeah, well, gosh, my... So my dad uh, is a lawyer, and he did some legal work for a local comic uh, store in town called Excalibur, and so was very happy to let me wander over there and uh, and just just go through the, um, the the back back issues. So I kind of read comics um, in a, in a very uh, I, I would just pick a comic that I liked out of the back, independent of like what series it was or what number it was. Um, and buy it and then read it and then go get another one uh so i read a lot of stuff from like the 70s and 80s uh, a lot of daredevil um a lot of marvel stuff occasionally some superman uh the death of superman of course oh
2: yeah uh did you get some chris claremont in there i feel like yeah feel a little like bit you would have been ground zero for that nonsense yeah
4: gosh um dark hawk. i was very into dark hawk for a period of time <laughs> um i read a lot of image stuff um Because that was... Again, this was like the early to mid-90s, so I was the target Mm -hmm. audience. Um, Gosh, uh, Bad Rock and Company, I feel like I had a very strong affection for. (laughs) Stuff like that. It -hmm. wasn't like... But I didn't talk to anybody about it. I would just go and buy those comics and then read them and then you know, go buy more. Uh, It wasn't part of a community thing for me.
2: Yeah, it was was a voyage of discovery. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be way less cool and say I mostly read Archie comics from the grocery store stands. uh, And... A lot of random stuff from the library systems. A lot of ElfQuest, very various randomized volumes of ElfQuest available at my local branch. I was really obsessed with Mouse in middle school. Sure,
4: that checks out.
2: <laughs> I found Mouse in fifth grade, and it was very engrossing to me. Um, so that's always a strange one when people ask me what my first graphic novel was. And I'm like, Oh, full Holocaust Graphic Book. <laughs> Uh, but but I also had uh, had a crush who was really into X-Men, so I, I borrowed a lot of X-Men comics. So if I borrowed, I mean, I was allowed to read them over recess <laughs> under supervision. Yeah, you
4: can't, you can't <laughs> let anybody get their grubby hands on every little thing.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and my tiny little lesbian heart was like, ooh, Joe Madureira draws, bro- draws rogues so pretty. <laughs>
4: yeah, I think we both came of age when uh, the female form was really open to interpretation.
2: Yeah, yeah,
4: definitely. <laughs> I remember a lot of eight-packs. I feel like eight eight to ten-packs were a big.
2: Everybody had a lot of pouches, also. Yeah, yep.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: a, lot of, a lot of head socks.
4: Head socks, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is just cool, because you have the uh, advantages of a hat, but also the advantages of cool
0: hair at the same time. Yeah. Plus, it keeps your face warm in the winter. Yeah, the sides of your face. <laughs> yeah, the sides of your face.
2: of the fact that we... Definitely read every newspaper comic ever yes. at the time too. So Calvin and yeah. Hobbes and Farside
4: and Elpis hey, and Bill. Um, yeah, we actually the Oregonian um, here, uh, where I grew up, uh, had an amazing. It had like a two-page comics, like a two, like honestly, like front and back page um, color comics on Sunday, and then during the week they had two pages of black and white comics, and then another stuff, like another section for like crosswords and editorial. So like, so it was like a pretty. Like political comics, like uh, Doonesbury, they got their own little <laughs> section for the adult sophisticated readers. <laughs> so you, I definitely had like a, a path that I would, like a reading order oh, absolutely. that was very, very rigorously maintained.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the order?
4: God, I mean, I think I would definitely, I would start with the like, like the Doonesbury and stuff like that because I didn't get any of the jokes. And then I would end on like the like the Haggard, the horrible, like you know those sort of like legacy comics because those were always like it was like all right, I've done all the I've done all the stuff that's like sort of challenging, and now I'm just going to like end on a very light note. It's
2: like the banana. Oh, okay, report, okay, okay.
4: yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the stuff I really liked would over the hedge. I loved over the hedge. Um, I would try and get that right in the middle. And Calvin and Hobbes, that would be a nice like sweet spot.
2: Yeah, yeah. respect. <laughs>
0: Um so uh you guys are here to talk about uh the Long Con your Ten Issue Oni series uh in which a San Diego style convention survives the apocalypse and becomes a uh, lord of the fly style wasteland where fandoms carve out fiefdoms among the halls of a convention center. Uh first of all, uh I love this series. I've been very uh you know, I I I you know, very excited to have you guys on. Uh how did you guys all end up coming together to uh to make it?
2: <laughs>
4: uh, uh, Dylan sent me an email and said Do you want to co-write a comic? I've got this idea
2: I, sh- I should note that we met in the cast of a Star Trek play
4: Yeah um, And we'd worked together previously on uh, I-, I wrote for um, a sketch comedy uh, radio show uh, It was like syndicated uh, on public radio networks Sort mm-hmm. of like We call it, We considered ourselves sort of like a hipper version Of A Prairie Home Companion Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which, for a
4: certain audience, it means something. It uh, means yeah, a lot but, to me, actually. So. Uh, but me and Dylan had gotten together and written some sketches. Like, uh, how, what was uh, we, uh, you did the uh, the NPR fashion runway.
2: Yeah, oh, the, the National Writers Award. Yeah. yeah the, red, the red carpet fashion work.
4: This <laughs> is like was it the corduroy carpet or something like that. It, yeah, it was a but... carpet.
2: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: stuff like that. That was sort of uh, the wheelhouse of that show.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, but yeah, I think we liked writing together. And yeah, Dylan had had this sort of percolating idea for a long time about yeah. mm-hmm. being in a comic convention and then just not being allowed to leave.
2: Yeah, I'm also, I'm also predatory about both friendships and collaborations, so I spend a long time doing, like, a measured approach and then strike like a viper.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's, that's about right. Um, yeah, and we've sort of been in the same circles for a long time. I always liked comics, but I hadn't written anything before, so uh, it was nice to jump in head first. Uh,
0: now, uh, I do want to hear more about this Star Trek play.
4: Yes, please. <laughs>
2: and reasonable. Uh, ben was more deeply involved than I was, so I'll let him give the context on that one.
4: Uh, yeah, it was called Truck in the Park. Um, it ran for five years because uh, we, we were it's doing a five-year mission. It's a five-year mission. <laughs> and people would say, "Do you want to do six years?" And we would say, "No, it's a five-year mission." Uh, the show didn't do five years, so I think that's pretty impressive. And also, the Paramount lawyers asked us very nicely to sort of, you know, <laughs> wrap it up in five. Uh, <laughs> when it was towards the end, it started getting. It was pretty high profile um, in our area. Um, and it was actually kind of a huge deal. At the end, there were thousands of people showing up. It was free, um, but yeah, there were thousands of people showing up. Um, yeah, just,
2: like the giant park amphitheater underneath the bridge kind of deal. Uh,
4: yeah, just to see <laughs> people. Um, and yeah, we did. We would do one uh, episode uh, uh, a summer. Um,
2: yeah, it's like Shakespeare in the Park, but yeah. but Star Trek.
4: Well the thing is the original series was very much the production values were very much like a stage play because you know they had big cameras. they couldn't really move them around very much. They had a limited amount for sets so you had to make those count. So you have a, 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 a lot of foam people rocks yeah. a lot of foam rocks, a lot of you know uh, you have a lot of you know sort of tumbling style uh, fight scenes, which are very easy it was not easy, but they're you know, you can choreograph those in a sort of Shakespeare style stage fighting scenario. Um, I say we I was a, basically a glorified extra um i I was in it for three years and i played uh, guards um and hadley who was a non-speaking role but did get to drive the ship
3: okay yeah how uh, how many red shirts did you wear over the course of those years
4: well so the first year i did it we did mirror mirror so i played both a regular red shirt and then a couple of mirror universe guards who get killed or knocked out or incapacitated Yeah. So I got that out of my system. The last year we did um, The Trouble with Tribbles that Dylan was also prominently in.
2: I was in, I was in two episodes oh, yeah. actually. You, you,
4: you were the Vulcan.
2: Um, I was in the Vulcan diplomatic the, corps. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was, I was uh, Sarek's you know, ballet, I guess. And, yeah. then, and then I was uh, space bar floozy yeah. in The uh, Trouble with Tribbles.
4: Yeah, which was an, an enormous production in, just in terms of Tribbles.
2: Yeah, we were just fistfuls of Tribbles just yeah. hurling them over that wall from backstage. <laughs>
4: We still have a couple in our apartment. Uh, my my roommate uh, directed uh, and starred was was Captain Kirk. Um, I was Arne Darvin, which was I think my biggest speaking role. Uh, yeah, but it was good. It was, it was a lot of fun. Fine
2: role. Fine role, yeah. So we had a lot of a lot of time hanging out backstage, and by backstage I mean in the grass behind the stage.
4: Yeah,
3: <laughs> uh, a lot of downtime.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, so. Uh, You you actually somewhat already answered the next question that I was going to ask, but I'm going to run with it anyway, Uh, because I was listening to a podcast recently where someone pointed out that most geeks in popular mainstream media, Big Bang Theory being sort of the key example, are these geeks of all trades, meaning that they're into everything geeky and almost the same ratio, and... One of the cool things about the long con is how very, very specific so many of those fandoms break down. And I'm kind of curious that, you know, you're clearly, I'd like to think, comic book fans since you're writing a comic. But uh, are there any other fandoms that you're deeply into other than Star Trek, which seems to be a gimme at this juncture?
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things we considered in the writing was like one of the sort of the first draft ideas was like, oh, well, we could do like one faction Star Wars and one faction Star Trek, which is sort of the classical division point. I think in popular culture type things about, you know, geek circles. But in reality, I think most people like both. Yeah.
2: So it's just yeah. They have a little, like being bisexual, you might have a little more preference for one I think or, or the other. that's
4: exactly know? what it's like. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's like we wanted to avoid those sort of like. Baseless tropes, because um, yeah, because I like Star Wars and Star Trek. It's possible to to like both. Usually, you have like one preference over the other, um, but not you're not would like
2: kick either one out of bed, right? It's
4: like I hate those Star Wars fans so much.
2: Yeah,
4: uh, that's just not a not a thing. So yeah, we definitely wanted to focus on what are the areas where there are conflicts, and I think there are some like you know, there's definitely some like genre type, uh, not maybe not open antagonisms, but there are people who just really like fantasy. And that's the world they like to spend time in. And non-fantasy stuff, is like, oh, not quite. Not well, we, really. we
2: made sure to, to really only hit stuff that we had individual background and understanding. Like, we didn't yeah. we didn't want to make fun of things that none of us loved. Right. Uh, and luckily, our artist, uh, Emily Denich, is an anime kid, um, which she'll say in tones of shame. But we're like, no, this is great, because neither yeah. Ben or I have enough depth in anime to truly know what tropes to goof on. I'm a little in anime,
4: but at a certain point, I had to hang up my anime spurs.
2: Yeah, like, you, just, you know, she's she's current; she's yeah. up to date on on all of it. But uh, you know, Ben Ben's been a film reviewer, so he's got a lot of background in like weird old nerd movies and you know, Viking barbarian films. Yeah, uh, you enjoyed doing the the research for I some very much enjoyed some doing of those the research. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, and I also feel like there's um, yeah that, the other thing I like is the fandom of, like, two. So it's like, you know, the, the, the Sequest DSV fandom, which I'm sure is out there.
2: There are, like, three people writing yeah. on AO3. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they all know each other.
4: But I feel like that's, like, a really interesting uh, well to draw from as well. And so we tried to incorporate that. The, the deep-cut people.
2: Yeah.
3: I, I personally love the short-lived uh, series The Middleman that I think I'm one of, like, five people who know existed.
2: Yep. No, I'm, I'm. I like if you get me talking about like space above and beyond.
3: We both love space above and beyond.
2: Fucking great uh, show.
3: I at a convention not too long ago in a box of dollar bins. I or in a box of dollar comics. Box of dollar bins. That's redundant. Um, I bought all of the space above and beyond comics that were published oh. for oh. a buck a piece. It was delightful.
2: That's a, gold, great. a Gold mine, truly. <laughs> Yeah, now we all we I to say, I've got like more of an animation and uh, and girl comics or indie comics background, so we had a really fun time uh, just riffing on you know web comics and the titles that you see in the artist alley generally at like a really mixed convention. We spent a lot
4: of time on that one big panel of them walking through the artist alley. Uh, <laughs> a lot
2: of into that. Yeah, and uh, we got to make fun of our uh, our publisher also. Uh, by by lovingly roasting their catalog, so I mean we really got to cover a ton of bases, and like we we all three of us are into weird random corners of fandom, uh, but just getting to generalize out from like everything we've been into since teenage teenagedom was fun.
4: Yeah, I mean I think the thing is, if you've got the the canvas is a convention, you really like you got to go big. <laughs> You gotta like, well, let's let's we, we can go as deep a cut as we want to go. We can do as broad as we want to get, like because that's what a convention is. It's
2: yeah, it's everything. Well, and conventions themselves are a form of fandom because they have their own culture and set of expectations and rules. And uh, you know, I've been exhibiting at conventions since I was like eighteen. So to me, I'm like, yeah, no, this is this is my subculture. Like, I'm a, I'm an exhibitor.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I actually
4: I went to a, a vintage toy fair uh, over the weekend. And it was a totally different feeling. Uh, it was a bunch of people surrounded yeah. by their toys, and they everyone was in a very good mood, which I think it was also in a, a pretty small sort of like event space. It was a lovely day. There were a lot of like kids, like genuinely like just their eyes were like saucers.
2: It's almost more of a reunion than like a convention per se. It
4: kind of felt like that, and like sort of like a little swap meet thrown in there. Like people weren't quite as hardened, I think, yeah. as you can get in con culture sometimes.
0: Absolutely. Um, what uh, we got into this a little bit, uh, talking about you know Dylan obviously has been uh, kind of on the scene for a while, but uh, I'm wondering what are your guys's kind of personal experiences with with the convention scene? Uh, you know, do you remember your first show? <laughs> Dylan but, may not. I'd...
2: Ben sure does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he hadn't been to one when I asked read the comic with me.
4: No, that's not true. I I, uh, I I've been to some conventions. I hadn't. I don't think, I don't know if I ever tabled at one. Well, I might have done. Um, I, no, but I do, my first show actually was in college and it was at, at the college I was at. The first, uh, there was a stump, a comic uh, con here called Stumptown. It was sort of indie focused. And one year they actually did it in the PSU sort of common area. And I wandered through like a very, like sort of power walk through. But it was like, it was a nice dipping the toe in the water. I was like, these people aren't, Awful monsters That was a
2: good friendly first First <laughs> yeah. convention to be sure it had, a, it had a really nice hometown vibe
4: Yeah um, And then I went to that one When it got sort of A little more like Became a real con A little bit more um, I went to that uh, pretty regularly But that was about kind of about it
2: Yeah I, I was an organizer for that show
4: So <laughs> Right By the time I was starting Dylan was already like
2: Yeah the board meetings Were in my apartment Oh boy I made quiche Yeah He's very into it. Uh, my, wow! What was my first convention?
4: Um, Dylan has been practicing the sword for many years. <laughs>
2: wow! Uh, I'm sure that I went to it with my friend Erica, who's like 20 feet away right now. Erica, what was my what was the first convention we, you took me to? Was it like Emerald City Comic Con in in like 1998 or something? Like that? Huh? It was, it was some tiny Seattle convention that was held somewhere near the Seattle Science Center, and I think the artist for Dawn was there, and that um, was, like, it. It was, like yes. a, it was a two-room convention, and it was, it was not very impressive. Um, but, uh, you know, I got to hang out with my friend, and just, it wasn't an intimidating experience. So it was kind of like, yeah, I belong here. I've got a bag full of Tria markers, and I could be a professional.
4: Yeah, I definitely, when I was a kid, I, I, the prospect of going to a Comic-Con was just alien and terrifying. I, I, it was not how I engaged with, I like to watch you know, Babylon 5 at a reasonable hour and go to bed. And like, that was how I like to engage with sort of like the Fast nerdy stuff. through
2: the commercials because you yeah, taped it. Yeah.
4: Exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, so I was not very engaged with like the sort of like uh, boots on the ground kind of fandom the way Dylan has been. Dylan has been up in that for a very long time.
2: I was an attendee for like 1 year and then went straight to being in it like an exhibiting artist. So in in a way I I missed out on like just enjoying conventions? The
1: civilian
4: aspect?
2: Yeah, like recently I like the year before this last one I went to Emerald City Comic Con just uh, just as a, as a pro badge. I wasn't I didn't have a table or anything. And it was it was revelatory. Yeah. Was like this is fun. I can leave yeah. and take a nap.
4: Like many activities, when you're allowed to leave, <laughs> they suddenly become much more appealing, and vice versa. If you're not allowed to leave, your favorite—it's like everybody like everybody wants to, you know, work at the Taco Bell when you're in high school because they love Taco Bell. But once you're there, it's like, oh no, I can never leave the Taco Bell, uh, and I don't like Taco Bell food anymore because that's all I eat anymore.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of gimlet-eyed convention pro humor in Long Con, hard-earned.
4: Uh, yeah, because I mean, my my ideal way to experience a convention is you. Pop in for forty five minutes, and then you go to the bar.
2: Yeah, and you you arrive at the show with a hangover. Yeah. So
4: ideally. Yeah. Um, we actually had uh, an interview this year at Emerald City, uh, like in the, in the morning or like right at noon, and which meant getting there at like ten because I had never been to a convention was before it, noon before. Was it
2: difficult for you then? <laughs> there was
4: security. There was like yeah. there were just just lines upon lines of people.
2: Some of us are up at dawn, so yeah. you can buy your cartoons it's, at lunchtime.
4: It's no way to live. Uh, yeah, it is It is very much like a different... It's a different animal.
0: Sure. Okay. Matt, I don't think I actually know this, but what was your first con? Well, that depends on
3: your definition of con.
0: Um, I I'm mean, already excited for this answer.
3: Well, no, only because <laughs> back in my very early comic collecting periods like when I was 12 or 13 um my dad brought me to a few different um of the sort of old school dealer shows with just guys bringing in boxes and boxes of you know cheap comics and I you know was given like 30 bucks and I got to go to town and that was
2: yeah you could buy a lot for 30 bucks
3: Back in especially back in the day when there were they weren't dollar bins they were quarter bins. Yeah, I, I, I had all sorts. I got all sorts of crappy comics that weren't that good, uh, and some <laughs> great ones too. Um, my first like real sort of modern professional con would have been Wizard World Philly two thousand and five. Okay, maybe. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, I went to various of those dealer shows over the course of the years because they would have some of them uh, at the Livingston Mall, actually, which oh, means really? nothing to you know. It means something to us Jersey guys, but I remember stumbling across a couple of them when I was at Drew, uh, the university I went to, because the mall wasn't too far from the college. Mm. But yeah, I mean, the, that was the Wizard World in 05 because it was the year before I met. My wife, who was then girlfriend who was living in Philadelphia, and so I started crashing with her for the cons um, uh, the next yes. year. But the first year, I had to commute up to North Jersey, back and forth all three days. And then it, was, it became a regular thing because I was working in a shop and we started doing cons. So it was like, yay, standing and <laughs> saying, no, we don't have any copies of that. If we had copies of that, it would be on the wall. Why would we be hiding that?
2: yeah do you just do you just have like the first spider-man somewhere in here just want to pull that out for me
3: oh yeah we go somebody asked you know well you, you have any of insert name of hot book in these dollar bins no yeah. why would we have that in the dollar bin
2: yeah if you have to ask it's not in the bins mm-hmm. people
4: who want to trade it's like no That's we're trying to
3: get rid of the comics they got <laughs> we don't need more
2: is yeah. for us to leave here with fewer
3: of them right unless you have some a book that's good enough for me to trade you four or five of these long boxes of dollar books for whatever you have no i am not interested in trading
4: there's actually there was a, a legendary huh. um a, a dealer sort of uh, trading show uh called the portland comic book uh portland just portland comic con something like that mm-hmm. from like, years ago but they would do it at the um the Coliseum, which was also the ice rink. Yeah. And so th- there were times where they were, like, had to put down, like, they couldn't get the floor to close or something, so they had to put down, like, cardboard over the ice. And it was sort of, as, as the day went on, it would sort of melt, and, like, the cardboard would get soggy. <laughs> and on itself it was just, like, a bunch of people with long boxes, but...
2: I mean, conventions can really be post-apocalyptic all on their it's own. Right they by just, themselves. They
3: sure. don't need oh, yeah. Dan, if we, uh, if this year, if we happen to go up to... Uh, Garden State Comic Fest up in Morristown, that is in an ice rink over yeah. over the the closed yeah. floor. So it keeps it nice and cool, which yeah. for a con is a good, thing. Yeah,
0: I, a good no, thing. I thought they actually had like an open like cosplay ice skating thing, though, during oh. that show. Hmm. Yeah, your they, environment, your best advantage. Oh,
2: yeah. well, didn't, why didn't we think of that yeah.
4: <laughs> oh. But That is sort of the problem with this book, is that every time we go to a con now,
2: You're it's like all... Oh, we couldn't...
4: Oh, <laughs> wanted... oh, yeah. <sighs> I definitely, uh, this year at Emerald City, uh, waiting in line for security watched, uh, two families, both in rival overwatch costumes who had not met each other, <laughs> okay. like comparing notes in the, in, in the different security lines. It was, that
0: was, a, that was, a, but again, moment. yeah,
2: little moment. we'll keep moments, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> um, Matt, you were at my first con, actually it was wizard world Philly. And I thought you we were going to say the same year as me, but it was 2010, um, you know, it was fun. It was a bit more the Wizard Worlds are always more of like an autograph farm than I, you know, I, I actually think I like it a show. But I remember being very impressed. Uh, this is the folly of youth speaking, but uh, meeting Ethan Van uh if I'd only known. Um, anyway, the very next show that I went to was New York Comic Con that same year. Yeah, that's that's not a good that's not a good like next step. Uh, I just remember not being able to move. That's all I remember from that, from that. Like, just being stuck in this miasma of humanity, slowly lurching across the show floor. And I remember being afraid to leave the lump or I would be stuck next to, like, the Valiant booth or something forever. Hey, guys. Dan here, breaking into my own uh, exposition. So I know I was being facetious, but uh, it occurred to me after I made that joke that Valiant wasn't publishing in 2010. They didn't come back till 2012. So, uh, fun fact, the more you know, correction, whatever you want to call it, there it is. Back to the show. It took yeah, me eight years before I could go back.
2: That's like, that's like going from a, like a, a small monarch <laughs> butterfly to Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: I gave up on New York, oh God, three or four years ago, partially because my social anxiety involving crowds got to be a bit much and also because i had to pull a full-on velma dinkley in that con when someone's big cosplay whatever bumped into me and knocked my glasses off no. and i'm completely blind so it was jinkies i can't see anything without my glasses trying to find them on the ground that was oh, like okay, done with new york can't do this anymore
4: that is a quality I think that we tried to capture in the comic, which is it's a, a bunch of people just con- constitutionally unsuited for crowds, who every <laughs> yeah, year
2: forming a crowd have
4: to yeah are, are composed yeah and and have to deal with it uh, even on a good day and then on a bad day you know all the all the different neuroses and anxieties and uh, manias come out.
2: I just go into like a, a crowd surfing battle mode. That involves a lot, a lot of quick swivels. I'm I'm a very small, pointy person. Yes. Yeah. So I do a lot of quick pivots and a lot of elbow throwing.
4: Dylan is a finesse class of a person.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely like like a rogue on the on the convention floor. But you know you can you sometimes switch into the scary. The, the scary fast walk in that, the in the less crowded areas where you still need people to clear but it's like I'm
4: important I need to go this way.
2: Yeah, I am not <laughs> having a good time and you will step aside from me.
4: I have actually found from experience being a uh, working for a newspaper is that there's a lot of times where I'm supposed to be somewhere usually like for a film review and I mm-hmm. just say there's a certain speed you walk and you say I'm supposed to be here and the security guard's like oh yeah okay that sounds about right. And yeah. you really they don't there's no like credentials they can check. But, like, you know, you're supposed to be there. Yeah. And so I try, you know, I, I don't use those powers for evil. As long
2: as you don't seem eager to be there, people will let you into a lot of places.
4: Yeah, if you're not too fast or too slow, you can be very suspicious if you're too slow. Yeah. So there's sort of a briskness and sense of purpose that really can get you from A to B very quickly. It's,
2: it's like the, the demeanor equivalent of a clipboard and a lab coat.
4: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, anybody in any sort of uniform can go anywhere they want. And that includes, like, pizza. Pizza uniform. <laughs>
2: They're just like, let sweet, wait, somebody's getting yeah. a pizza. Yeah. I can't get in the way of that. <laughs> Who
4: would pretend to be a pizza guy? Go on through. <laughs> I definitely do the, I, I follow the larger fish in their wake uh, and just sort of drift in that way. Uh, usually, like, if there's a big robot, that can be a good way to just, like, get in behind yeah. the robot.
2: Yeah. It's when they have to, they have to stop for yeah. photo ops. That, that's, that doesn't yeah. pay off. Then
0: you have to shoot around and find the yeah. next nice one. <sighs> um. Do, do you guys have a, a particular a home base show or a favorite show that you do every year?
2: That's probably Emerald City Comic Con for me, just because uh, my studio uh, Helioscope uh, has a really varied group of members. But Emerald City Comic Con is sort of the regional show that is easy for all of us to reach geographically. We're in Portland, Oregon, so it's a three-hour drive or an equivalent train trip or a you know fifteen-minute plane ride. They basically like throw a can of Coke at you so you can drink it before the plane lands. Um, <laughs> but it, it's such a big show that it, it really has room for people of all different career orientations. So it's a great show for me, and it's also a great show for my studio mate, Steve Lieber, who's you know drawing Jimmy Olsen with Matt Fraction. So that's that's the show that I hit pretty much every year. Even if I'm not going as an exhibitor, I'm going to go as an attendee. It helps that my parents live in Seattle, so I get to stay for free. That's, that's a nice perk.
4: Yeah. Um, and the the local show here is Rose City, uh, <laughs> which has is a lot of the same qualities. It's smaller. Um, and it's also when there's a show in the town you live in, you guys probably know this. It doesn't really feel like a convention. You're just, you know, it's like, well, I'll go over the show today. As opposed to like, you know, the travel packing, staying, you know, with friends or in a hotel, like being in that sort of show mindset. We're like, oh well, let's go. You know, let's all go get dinner afterwards.
2: You get to be real cool for your out of town friends. Be like, yeah. no, I know a place.
4: Yeah, <laughs> um, it, but it, and it. But what I do like about both uh, Rose City and Emerald City is that they're in the city, um, so you you're not at the at the whim of like one Applebee's, uh, <laughs> and like an AM PM after after the show. It's, you're in downtown uh, Seattle, or you know, sort of the industrial district in Portland where you can like, there's stuff around.
2: You're not in say Rockville, Maryland.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, just 20 minutes outside of town where some, you know, some convention centers are.
2: Or there. yeah, just hotel conventions also.
4: Yeah. Oh,
3: you guys need to come to, to Philly. The convention center is right near Chinatown. Ooh. So many dining options.
2: Uh, I, I,
4: I really enjoyed the time I was in Philadelphia.
0: A lot of good dining options in general. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'd go. <laughs>
0: Um, so kind of getting into the series and, uh, talking about that, actually, Matt, I think I'm teeing up your question here.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I've got a, um, so one of the things that I've, I binged the entire series in the course of about four days, which was delightful. Um, and I really dig the way you play with time and space and how, The present bleeds into flashbacks, bleeds into episodes of Skylarks, the Star Trek, Serenity, Firefly sort of mishmash. Um, Where did that sort of playfulness with time and form come from?
2: It was not in the first draft. We did we did no. everything uh, very chronologically initially, and then we're like, this is not nearly dynamic enough. It would be more interesting if we split up the reveals and we teed up characters who you know only really pay off in later issues if we introduce them and pay them off in the same issue.
4: Well, I think yeah, it was helpful to write it chronologically because that way you make sure that you know it, you get from A to B. Um, but yeah, I think we realized pretty quickly that oh, the first issue is going to look nothing like every other issue of that comic. Yeah, if
2: we have an issue and a half of just, oh, here's here's a normal convention, let's right. meet all the, all the wacky people, and then somewhere in issue two, the world yeah. blows up that that, that was uh, not very satisfying.
4: That's, I think, something you could get away with maybe in a graphic novel or maybe, you know, something that's, like, of a piece. But if you're doing single issues, you really need to have the first issue really be what the whole comic's going to be about. Um right. And it also affords you, this is just a little inside baseball, if you don't know how to end a scene, flashback.
2: Yeah, just, just cut cut to something that can appear in both the yeah. past and the present, and then you get the fun little kick for the reader of, oh, look, now it's ruined!
4: Yeah, the before and after shots were a lot of fun. Um, and, yeah, again, visually really interesting uh, for our artists and, uh, and our colorists as well Yeah, um, to have fun with. Uh, there's a lot to play with there. And I, I do think that, like, the game, uh, when you're reading, you know, especially the first, uh, we do it, mostly we do it in the first trade. The game is seeing somebody in the past and being like, what are they going to look like? Like, how are they going to handle this?
2: Or, yeah, worse, mostly.
4: Mostly, but sometimes that better.
2: Cool.
4: And sometimes, so, we have a gag with one character where she's just the same.
2: Yeah, just, just, nothing has changed. Yeah. This is her natural environment in the East state.
4: Yeah.
2: I think that the Skylark's, uh, the Skylark's episode's bits were, were really uh, Ben's uh, brain baby
4: yeah, well, and I think obviously the book is very inspired by Galaxy Quest um, and and other sort of you know uh, fake Star Trek shows, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, episodes of Law and Order where they go to a convention uh, and they're you know they're watching you know spacewalk or the whatever. Star
2: blasters. Um,
4: but something I, I felt with those examples of sort of deconstructing pop culture is that they all really sort of by design can't really fully encompass the sort of the giant woolly beast. That like a Star Wars or a Star Trek is, um, they really have to just be about everyone's obsessed with one show, and they're not obsessed with the third version of the spin-off of the novelization of the. Uh,
2: you know. A shambolic corporate entity. Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> so I think for us it was good for having a ten issue series. Um, like, well, let's be like,
2: what's the show like in the eighties?
4: <laughs> yeah, what's the show like in the eighties? What's the show in the seventies? What's the What's
2: the show they don't talk about and it's not canon anymore? The, yeah, what's, the, <laughs> yeah, like
4: what's the, the weird
2: sexy one?
4: Yeah, what's the we- the and in, in, in a way they're all the weird sexy ones, but like each generation has its own weird you know sexy insert character. Um, what's the co- the what's the comic book like? Which I think we dropped that one because that would have been like
2: it would have been a little too meta. Well, yeah,
4: like our, our noses started to bleed when we were trying to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> we
2: we did have the uh, the superhero characters who are important at the convention are yes. mentioned in the context of Skylark. So didn't we do that? Yes. Yeah,
4: so well, we have there's an episode, and again, and these are the kind of cuts that nobody but me cares about, but I care about very deeply. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no offense, including me, and in the people who yeah. don't care about it.
4: It's fine. Dylan's heard this before, but there's a quality I love in shows like that where every, every, every character in like, you know, Babylon 5 or especially, you know, Voyager, there's like the middle-aged showrunner insert character who's okay. very <laughs> exotic, 21st century culture or 20th century culture. And it's always like Harley Davidson's. And, like, yeah. Hawaiian shirts.
2: Daffy Duck.
4: And it's never, like, you know, six, you know 16th century opera, which <laughs> to them would be the same. Like, they wouldn't have some mythical connection with all the stuff a Baby Boomer Fine
3: yeah. School. Like,
2: oh, a Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. yeah and and yet,
3: somehow. Anything and everything Reg Barclay was into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: And so, and, and there's, like, a, you know, and there's, like, a, a Looney Tunes. Like, there's a lot of characters like that once you start to notice them. They pop up a lot. And so we felt it would be fun and, and useful for us if, if they have an in, if a character who's really nostalgic for, like, 90s comic books. So, you know, why not? Yeah, um, sure. So we have one of the characters reading one of the comic books that would have been an ancient relic. Uh, well,
2: and there's a corporate connection, as we, yeah. as we find out, you know. He'll yeah. think I probably got a kickback. Yeah.
4: <laughs> um, yeah, so we like having those sort of interconnected things. And, and
0: uh yeah. Part of it, especially in the early going, um, fix Editor Cal kind of sees, looks at the con as a treasure trove of pre-event media content. And <laughs> I am really I, I really started thinking about this idea if, you know, the bomb goes off or whatever and all we have left is what is being sold at the bootleg DVD table at a uh, convention, you know, would future generations just kind of look back on and, and assume our you know, the lion's share of our pop culture was, like, the Pride of the X-Men pilot and DVD I mean, collections of obscure Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Yeah, and like, a
2: lot of really awkward hentai. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, and that, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's sort of the way history works, right? Yeah, like, these
2: people really were into tentacles. It's, it's really yeah. not that far off from, why did all these monks keep drawing knights riding snails? What? That, <laughs> well, <laughs> What's with the knights riding snails?
4: And I think this is a, an absolute, like, uh, sidebar, but there's definitely, like, the... What we think of uh, as Arthurian legend is all—they're all like 13th-century castles—and obviously King Arthur was like 300 years before that. They didn't have that kind of masonry. But <laughs> in our, as as pop culture evolves, whatever survives tends to tends to be the, mm-hmm. um, the thing. And people, you know, have, the
2: Odyssey is a fan fiction of the Mycenaean civilization.
4: So the and after you know with rise and falls of civilization those whoever is nerdy enough to uh write it down or record it or keep everything hidden away sort of gets to dictate that next generation of pop culture event. that wasn't really what we were intending to do with that yeah. we just yeah. thought it would be funny if uh you know all the stuff that we take for granted was gone thanks to the apocalypse and so this is one place that has a bunch of like unaffected comic books or you know dvds or whatever mm-hmm. um a concentration of media
2: i always think about that one moment in <laughs> Hitchhiker's shaker's guide to the galaxy where he's, he, earth has just been destroyed and the fact that that's the case is hit, and he's trying to feel something about it but it's yeah. just too abstract and then he realizes that all the humphrey bogart movies are gone yeah and that is that's what finally like sink, makes it sink in for him that the that earth and human civilization has been destroyed and it's like that yeah it's kind of To that moment of realizing, wait, somewhere on the planet there's still a complete run of, you know, Claremont's Dark Phoenix song. Yes! The holy texts remain!
4: That's going to (laughs) be, and I thought that was a nice, especially for like a comedy book like ours is mostly, you know, post apocalyptic stuff, it's all about food and water and stuff. And it's like, no, 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 let's have people looking for comic books.
2: Yeah, they they still, I mean, we're always going to care about our our stories, our garbage stories.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that was again also like we just didn't want it to be so heavy that like, you know, uh, a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction is, you know, by necessity, pretty bleak. We wanted ours to set aside it, have it be colorful, have it be have the goals involved be. It's
2: a fun apocalypse.
3: Yeah, <laughs> we didn't use that in the book. So Maybe we
2: should have. Yeah. Wow.
3: I, I just need to shout out a moment in the book. Actually, it's something that pops up a few times that. The first time I saw it literally made me laugh until there were tears running down my face. Um, the moment when random arbitrary red shirt esque character dies and his word bubble is Wilhelm scream. Uh, <laughs> that is now my new favorite pseudo sound effect in comics. This side of Walt Simonson. I <laughs> freaking loved that.
4: Although I will say, I think that was our, our letter uh, at I, that in as just like a shorthand i think i was gonna fill it in later
2: no i think i you you put it in to say this is this is a dumb shorthand we'll actually yeah. decide what it is and i was like no it, it stays yeah. in there you go it's perfect somebody will read this and love it and it was you yeah. Yes. yes oh, good. I'm, I'm glad it landed yeah. it's like a
0: uh, happy ron burgundy reading off the teleprompter accident
4: <laughs> <laughs> i think that's fair and i also feel like it's one of those again one of those um things we tried to recreate that are, again, our letterers and colorists and everything else, the incidental sort of production-side things of old TV shows, you know, like the the fuzz on the monitor or, like, you know, the this the stock sound effect that you've heard a hundred times. Like, mm-hmm. those are all qualities we wanted to capture because it's, we're not doing, like, a, a, a Star Trek comic. We're doing a comic about the, the show.
2: Fandom. Yeah, yeah,
4: the fandom around the show and then the show itself. And so those sort of artifacts... Um, I mean, you know, and, and in our you know script notes, it's like this yeah. is cave set number three.
2: Yeah, supercut of every right. time this boulder appears. <laughs> I think there's a supercut yeah. of that one like fern that appears across Sense. the Enterprise in in next gen, where they're just like, here's every here's every scene where this one fern was used by the set dressers. Like, well, quick, get fern number four. Yeah,
4: get that that fern. Like, it's worth its weight. Put <laughs> that <not> in there. <laughs>
0: Um, one thing uh, I love about this series, uh, is the covers, uh, Emily and, and Fred have done, uh, especially in the later issues, these amazing homages to like teen pop magazines and Frank Frazetta, barbarian paintings and like 1980s pop art. Uh, I, I was curious, you know, whether you guys kind of talked about those in advance or if they just kind of come out and like surprise you with them.
4: Uh, no, no, we, we talked about it. Um, yeah,
2: we picked them all around.
4: The first five, which were colored by, uh, our first color is Victoria Roboto, were, uh, our editors wanted to do kind of straightforward uh, and, like, sort of movie posters, like, what's in the tin kind of covers, <laughs> which I think, again, as a, as a comic book reader, I always appreciated when the cover matched the book inside. Well,
2: yeah, because especially with, like, the first five issues of something, you really want to... Like, somebody to be able to look at it on the stand and yeah. say, Oh, okay, I understand the setting and what kind of characters are in this.
4: Right. And like, I like them. Let's get more of that. Um, so by
2: volume two you kind of figure everybody who's on board is is on yeah. board. And now if we do something wacky and it grabs somebody's eye that the other covers didn't, then oh that's that's bonus.
4: Yeah. So we sat down before we, we started on uh, uh, volume two or when we were doing the planning stages, we were like, let's just let's just have fun.
2: Yeah, let's do homage covers, and we can figure out what, what particular era of of uh, pop visual we want to goof on.
4: And they do sync up. Like the the one ties into a very Fransetta storyline. The yeah. the eighty the uh, the Nagel one is. God, great. that was
2: my baby. That
4: was it's beautiful. <laughs>
2: I love Patrick Nagel so unironically as a child of the 80s who randomly spent a lot of time in hair salons. Uh, Those were always those terrible graphics were always so captivating to me. And they so speak of a very particular era. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, you know, it was our 80s flashback episode. And we had, you know, an, an intense businesswoman character who's, you know, working in showbiz. I was like, please. Yep. Can we please oh, have the,
4: the, the mushroom clouds and her Nagel glasses? Oh, are great.
2: the reflective glasses. Yes. It was. It was really, really fun. Like I'm used to being the artist on a lot of projects, so I'm the magic art box that you put a request into, and then the thing comes out. <laughs> uh, and it was. It was really, really pleasant to be the requester this time and be like, "Can we do thing X?" And then thing X is awesome and just appears in my inbox.
4: We did have an interesting challenge with that one. Uh, one of our main characters, Dez, is black, and. Uh, our, 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 Patrick
2: our, Nagel did not draw. Our anybody. colorist was like, "Can you
4: give us a reference photo of how Patrick Nagel would draw a black person?" We were like, "Nope, we cannot." And <laughs> <laughs> I look beautiful Asian man, yes.
2: File not found.
4: Yeah, um, statuesque uh, ivory-colored woman, absolutely, no, yep. not a problem. Now,
2: if you, if your complexion was not bone white, he would not depict it. And
4: uh, you know, everyone's got their wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for the covers, uh, M a kills it every time she had a lot of fun with the, the the tiger beat one.
2: Oh god we all had a lot of fun with the tiger beat one that, yeah, was, it, that was a blast writing writing those titles i was like uh, i didn't know i'd been studying my entire teenage dem for this exact moment but i have
4: i think i said tiger beat because i think tiger beat is just a funny thing to say it is, it is. dylan <laughs> dylan had every gag on that cover uh what lip gloss are you <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm the. the <laughs> is what which lip gloss are you? I, I think, think most of them are you. That might be one of my best jokes of all time. Uh, but yeah, how to read his mind because that's your job as a girl, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was there was, I got some things yeah. off my chest with that.
4: Oh, I came up with the British uh, boy band. Excuse us. Yeah. Which I think was important. <laughs> ben,
2: <laughs> M, i insisted on it being a Z.
4: Yes, excuse. that's fair. That is, yeah. that is of the time. M then designed an entire fictional British boy band.
2: Which ben, does not appear in the book.
4: Oh it, it does not appear. It's never referenced. <laughs> no. Just That's just on that one issue. They did not have a big uh, career after that issue. They just <laughs> went away.
2: No, but it was useful for demonstrating that our uh, Kid Star character, like, he ha- he did, in fact, have a cultural moment where yeah. he was like the Jonathan Taylor Thomas he had his moment in the
4: 1992. Songs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just in terms of uh, coming up with the covers, M for the first five, M would come up with three or four <laughs> thumbnails, and then we'd bat it around and come up with it. Like, it definitely her, uh, she came up with, like, the blocking and the, sort of we give her like a broad strokes like maybe this yeah. and then she would go nuts with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she uh, just kills the covers. I feel like yes. she should just be doing covers for things that aren't her work.
2: Yeah, she would be she would be an amazing cover artist. So somebody hire her to do that, please.
4: And then also the inside too. But like Oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, it's covers. fun to
2: see her just like stretch herself and really have fun making rich, elaborate images that, if you try to do them in the interior of a comic, you die yeah. horribly uh, and don't meet any deadlines. So it was fun to get to see her in both modes.
4: Yeah, and definitely stylized art, which you get into a little bit with like the flashbacks of the different shows and the video games and stuff like that. But having the covers be like a nagel or like a my favorite one was like the, the 60s uh, pulp um, sci fi cover. Yeah, yeah,
2: the sci fi cover. Um,
4: uh, that was great. Uh, and then uh, issue 10, which isn't uh, out yet, but we, um, close to my heart, we did a, a movie poster, uh, a version of a movie poster um, that, I, that I think people will appreciate.
0: Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Um yeah, we should mention this. Uh, as of, you know, when we're recording, issue number nine is out uh, May 8th, uh, which means there is only one more issue to go. Uh, is issue 10, like, already all the way in the can, or do you guys still have any more work to do with that one?
2: We, we finished it's, writing the last page today, actually. Uh, Emily, Emily's uh, submitted inks, so uh, they're off to the yeah. colorist and letterer. But yeah, we're, we're pretty much, we're, we're done.
4: Actually, M, we, we
2: have back matter stuff to do, but...
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, M finished... Uh, yeah, I guess the the final final notes on her inks today. Yep. We had the script. I mean, obviously we had the script. We had done.
2: one gag left hanging in the balance.
4: We yeah. So like, was it? A month or two ago? When did yeah. you finish writing? We finished. Basically, finished writing it a month or two ago. We had one line. We were like, uh, oh, she should do a joke here, but all the jokes we can we can think of aren't good.
2: Yeah, we really we really went to the mat for for like a week trying to grind out this last line, and then we're like, you know what? Emily has enough to draw the issue. We'll come back to this. And yeah.
4: and then we forgot about it. Uh, and then our editor was like, "Hey, so you About guys." Not that last line. And then we looked at it and we're like, "You know what? I, we don't really need a joke here." Yeah,
2: this is actually funny as it is. We're we're good. Yeah. yeah we're gonna be those jerks.
4: Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely uh, the the. And we had like when we pitched it, we had a pretty good idea of how it was gonna end. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely like a, a an arc um, that goes to the entire series. We didn't like wake up, you know, one Tuesday being like, "Oh crap, we forgot."
2: Yeah, we always had a detailed outline. Yeah, uh, that you know altered significantly as we went through, but still the basic points yeah. remained the
4: same. As the story evolved, we definitely um, like who the bad guy is changed at various points because there's sort of this unseen, you know, force sort of like behind the scenes. It's
2: a special guest.
4: But we had a lot. We had we hadn't really pinned down what that force was going to be. So there were different definitely points where like, what if it was like an evil turtle? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no evil turtle. Okay. <laughs> But, again, that's when you, when all you have is, like, that Inspector Gadget, you know, fist behind the security camera kind of thing. you got a lot of options for how you want to. Yeah,
2: so what's actually there when you turn on the light switch? Yeah. Yeah. You
3: know, a, big, a big old turtle. <laughs> With shifty eyes.
2: Yeah, that's the important part. That's
0: right? how you know it's bad. Exactly.
3: <laughs> Thank uh, you for getting my reference.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything uh, next for you guys comics wise that you can you can that you can talk about? Dylan certainly can.
2: Oh yeah, I'm doing everything. Every everything and, and forever. Uh, so we've got the second volume of the second trade volume will come out this summer. Mm-hmm. I also have a giant middle grade graphic novel coming out on the twenty fifth of June from Candlewick called Queen of the Sea. It is completely the opposite of the Long Con in every way.
4: It just received its fourth star review, I believe. Yes.
2: That is correct, uh, but yeah, it, it is a uh, sensitive 16th century alternate historical fiction about 11-year-old girls and nuns, so, you know, it's, uh, it's going to have exactly yeah. the same readership. Not a direct
4: sequel, but, you know, a spiritual successor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like to mix it up.
0: That's great. Um, you know, it kind of—actually, uh, you know what? I do want to bounce back for a second, because I've been thinking a lot, you know, there's there's so many fictions within the fiction of this book. Obviously, you know, Skylarks uh, absorbs a lot of that focus, but, I mean, just looking around the show floor at all these other sort of shows and video games and, and comics that don't actually exist. Um, I did want to ask uh, regarding Boat Cop, uh, which yeah. I believe is is Des and Lauren's uh, kind of hideout uh, early on. Is yeah. that a cop that polices boats, or a boat that is a cop? That's a very good question.
2: Yeah, we never settled that, did
0: we? <laughs> well, the, so that is sort of a, an in joke. Uh, the
4: the the paper I write for, the Portland Mercury, <laughs> um, I was God, that from? I was very active uh, in the sort of commenting community, and there was some joke. It was Ned Laneman, who's the music review guy. He made some joke about like franchises that would be better than something that was dumb. And Boat Cop was one of those, (laughs) as like potential ideas for series. A
2: mid-season replacement?
4: Yeah, something like that. Um, And they captured our imagination. It's also
2: just fun to say out loud, Boat Cop.
4: it is, and it it also begs that question. I feel like he's a real cop who only handles boat-based crimes. And he lives (laughs) on a boat, and he possibly has a different boat that he drives to crimes, Uh,
3: but (laughs) only (laughs) boat-based. There's always a fjord or an inlet. Exactly. And if you get it on land, it's not his problem. He is, he's done.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's where, it's sort of like Aquaman that yeah. way. Uh, we, we, we did bemoan the fact that some of the, uh, some of the fake franchises and titles and stuff that we came up with, like, we would have actual stories for what they were about. Yeah. Especially at the, the total bullshit press booth. Like, <laughs> we had ideas of what every single one of those titles actually entailed.
4: Well, and I will say a lot of that wound up in the back matter uh, of yeah. the individual issues. Um, where I have, we have four pages to play with every issue, and it was very responsible of them to give us that because we have taxed their graphic designer very hard <laughs> in terms of coming up with, like, well, yeah, we want to do, like, a letters column for a fake comic book thing. I've, and then,
2: I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to contribute slash art of uh, various characters who appear yes. in the comic. That's been, that was a good time.
4: Dylan has dutifully drawn uh, slash art from different eras of... Uh, a yep. fandom, uh, quite authentic- authentically.
2: Yeah, say. no, I did a lot of visual research for uh, old old school Spot Kirk slash.
4: My favorite thing about that, which is the back matter of the first <laughs> issue, is that you made sure I wrote <laughs> some very torrid fan fiction uh, of the era as well for the. Zine, presumably, yeah, it and was it's made. all
2: like typewritten and maybe handcrafted yes. uh, to look like it was hand distributed.
4: But Dylan made sure that the uh, the the printing from the fan fiction bled through on the other side where the art was to really capture that feeling of getting a 1970s uh, yeah,
2: like really cheap typing paper where the ink is starting to saturate through.
4: And probably was from the very beginning because you know they're they're doing it you know they're they're doing it for, for the love of the craft. Absolutely. And,
2: uh, for the
4: love of the smutty, smutty craft. Yeah. <laughs> and again, aside, just a sidebar there. I, I knew intellectually that there had been Kirk Slipbach you know, erotic fan fiction and fan art since the 1970s. I didn't know like how hard they went. Oh man! Like it's not it's no, not, hard not hard R. Yeah, it's like said, it's yeah. rated X. Like it's yeah. they are and just really vivid imaginations.
2: Yep. No, no, nothing. Nothing currently on the Internet is
4: new. And it, this was not Internet. These guys were like Xeroxing and gals were Xeroxing. It was these mostly women. Yeah. And like or like <laughs> teletyping each, uh, you know, the the, the the typewritten stuff like this was very like low tech. Yep,
2: Hand, hand stapled and then put in the mail.
4: Yeah. And uh, it was. So, yeah. So those that's that stuff has always been floating around.
2: Uh, I, I liked getting to give a hat tip to like very old school female fandom culture because yeah. you know so much nerd stuff is typified as like male it's it's for dudes, and and in, in reality I feel like the dudes are the tip of the nerd iceberg and yeah. then there's just this vast iceberg below composed of queers and women uh, who keep so many weird little franchises like keep keep them functionally afloat and there's
4: a certain amount of like sort of gentrification. Where dudes come in and say, "This is ours now," you get out of here, you guys. Yeah, like, this is
2: cool. Stop making them kiss.
4: Yeah, um, <laughs> but like also just like the original conventions, like the original like cosplay, like that—that that was like people sewing, you know, women sewing their favorite characters and then showing up and looking cool. Like there's yeah. in the in like the '60s, like in the '60s and '70s, those early sci-fi conventions, mm-hmm. it's pretty split gender-wise. Like there's a huge um, sort of un unrepresented uh, communities in, in sort of geek history that we wanted to definitely acknowledge. Yeah, they
2: don't see on the Big Bang Theory.
4: Yeah. No offense to <laughs> the Big Bang Theory.
2: No, no. Full offense. Full offense.
4: Some offense the Big Bang
0: Theory.
2: Yeah, there you
0: go. Yeah, wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, we mentioned ElfQuest earlier. Wasn't Wendy Petey like one of the first like known cosplayers? She used to do like Red Sonia or something like that? I, I feel know, like I've read that was, somewhere.
2: She was very known. They're yeah. there. Ha, cha, cha. <laughs>
0: Um, so, what are you? What are you guys reading now? In your uh, when you have time to read?
2: I'm mostly reading fan fiction right now because I'm so tired from deadlines.
0: Uh.
4: Yeah, I uh, I found a, a a series of 1970s sci-fi paperbacks that I've gotten really into.
2: God, we're just giving the dweebiest answers possible, aren't
4: we? Yeah, but, um, uh, it's the John Grimes saga. I'm, I'm very into it right now. Uh, it's. Not very PC, but is definitely, like, uh, kind of scratches that, uh, like, original series itch of, like, dudes in spaceships wandering around and getting into mischief. uh, Written by a a real-life naval captain. Aw. That element of authenticity.
2: That's delightful. And
4: also just deeply, deeply sexual.
2: Yes. (laughs) There's that as well. I mean, I'm reading fan fiction, so same. Yeah? Yeah, Yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) What, What kind of fan fiction?
2: Oh, I'm not telling you. Yeah.
0: Okay. All
2: right. All right. <laughs> that's, that's between me and my god.
0: Yeah. Uh, no problem. Um, ben, did I actually, did I see somewhere that you collect laser discs? Oh,
2: no. You, oh, You did indeed. Very, oh, boy. I'm
4: actually writing, I'm writing an article. Uh, I,
2: I just sat way back in my chair. Got yeah, so
4: the next hour is made it you to <laughs> just focus.
2: going to unleash bees
4: uh no it, uh, i'm writing an article a paper but there's um uh there's a website called discount Laserdisc, which mm-hmm. is essentially the largest collection of laser discs um or one of them uh i think just ever um and he lives he's uh, a local guy uh, and so i uncovered this sort of world of people who like laserdiscs. yeah and i it, as is often the case i became too close to the story and now i've got a Pretty substantial collection myself.
2: Yeah, no, you definitely fell into like a perfect. It, it's like the film dude equivalent of getting into model trains.
4: Yeah. Oh, the, the the laserdisc guy would have done model trains, but model train collecting is like this big thing, and so you can't you can't be the king of model trains these days. You can be the king of laserdiscs, which I believe is what the article is going to be called. That's <laughs> part of what,
2: comic. I was like, yeah. no, this, this is smaller. You can make a dent in this industry.
0: Yeah. What, what are some of the gems in your laserdisc collection? Oh, oh boy. Oh uh, man, he's
2: got some good ones.
0: Oh, um let's see. The, definitely
4: the, the thing you look for are stuff that never made the jump to DVD. Okay. Uh, so I have a uh, a movie called it was originally called The Grotesque, but it's a sting uh stings in it. It's sort of a, a weird dark Victorian uh, uh a weird dark comedy that I think it's in D, on DVD in Europe. Um Oh, the Advocate, which was uh, a Colin Firth uh, medieval lawyer comedy um, that was sort of stuck on... <laughs> it
3: was just such a random assortment of order. Well, yeah. the, 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 these all sound delightful. I want yeah. to see all of these.
4: That's, that's sort of what I keep an eye out for. Um, oh, uh, what's the... Uh, I have uh, the the James Bond uh, Criterions. Those are probably the the, the gem gems. Um, the, the first three uh, Connery Bonds, they're the Criterions... Um, are, are very nice to put together and have commentary that has been verboten by the broccolies because it gets a little saucy.
0: <laughs> so. Wait, does that so was Criterion around when Laserdisc was around or did they do, do yeah. like, oh wow, I did our not know
4: that. And it's Laserdisc only. They were not going to muddy their hands with VHS. Um, <laughs> so there are. that's another thing I keep an eye out for are Criterion discs where they lost the license. Um <laughs> so I've got... Um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is neat, which isn't like uh, they didn't never got the DVD rights for that.
0: Uh, yeah, stuff like that. Interesting. Well, guys, uh, as we are wrapping up, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed?
4: Uh, yeah, online is definitely how I prefer to be followed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I am O. Coleman at Twitter,
2: uh, and that's O. O. H. Coleman. O. H. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I'm D. Maconus at Twitter and everywhere really.
0: Yeah all right guys thank you so much thank you thank you that's it for this week's show as always you can listen to wmqna on apple Podcasts, stitcher soundcloud and at wmqcomics.com where new episodes move tuesday mornings you can support wmqna and wmqcomics.com at patreon.com slash wmqcomics where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the M&T. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out wmqcomics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!